This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Well, hello. Libby is off today, but she will be back for Free for All Friday tomorrow. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie has gotten into a bit of trouble with Premier Doug Ford for going public with her concerns around the PC's new controversial housing legislation. She came out last week warning that the impact of the provincial government's legislation that limits the city's ability to collect fees from developers means that Mississauga homeowners will pay between 5 and 10% more in property taxes every year over the next 10 years. Yesterday, Doug Ford told reporters that some mayors, like Bonnie Crombie, don't want to play in the sandbox and should stop whining and complaining and get on board with the plan to build new homes. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And here they are, former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, and Toronto City Councillor for Ward 6 York Centre, James Pasternak, our Thursday Tune Into the Town panel, when we talk about all things municipal. Hello to you all. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. How are you? Hi, Jane. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. It's good to talk to you guys again. David, as a former mayor, I'll ask you first your thoughts on Doug Ford's response to Mayor Bonnie Crombie's concerns. Well, I think, first of all, I think Bonnie Crombie was was registering the same concern that mayors, mayors and councillors have across the province. The province of the provincial government under Ford in the last while, through a number of bills, Bill 23, Bill 39, others, uh, has been making a direct attack on the ability of municipalities to carry out their job. He's doing that basically because he's trying to give the odds greater strength for his friends in the land development industry. He's been restricting and continues to restrict the ability of municipalities to, to carry out their job. I think it's a very dangerous time for municipalities. I'm with Bonnie Crombie. We're not related, but I'm with her. She's right. <laughs> and again, the premier's wrong. So his comment to her about just get on board, like he would just rather have all these mayors sit around nodding and being yes people rather than asking questions or raising concerns, David? Yes, he introduced Bill 39, uh, which which calls for the the, uh, the, the the mayor to be able to carry out provincial business on the council with only a minority vote, uh, one third of the council. Uh, and he's all promised that to go to the other municipalities around the province as well. That's why I say it's a dangerous time for municipalities and and Bonnie's giving voice to that. Karen, what are your thoughts in hearing this tit-for-tat between Mayor Crombie and Premier Ford? I mean, I I, kind of side with uh, with David on this one. I I think that she's articulating what many people are feeling, and, and she's posing the question directly, like, you know, who pays for new growth? Is it and, it, and it's a serious question that we need to answer because it's not just, it's new growth, it's not just about housing. It's about how do you support what all the other, like what is all the infrastructure that's needed to support this new growth? And, you know, the federal government has set these ambitious targets around 
um, welcoming new Canadians, and Ford is using that as a reason to bypass democratic principles, to bypass proper funding of the new infrastructure, to bypass local decision-making. And it's, it's a very dangerous situation that's being created where you can justify all of these real uh, excesses of authority uh, in the name of building houses. And fundamentally, the question is, who pays for all this? And it's something that is not being addressed because of all the noise that's been created about the way that he has approached this legislation. James Pasternak, your view from Toronto City Hall. Well, I'll tell you, I I agree in part with Karen and David. Um, One of the biggest barriers to building housing across Toronto, and especially in my area, is aging infrastructure. And if you take away the opportunity to raise revenue to pay for that uh, aging infrastructure and upgrade it to current density levels, you won't get new housing. In fact, taking away those funds will slow down the building of housing. And and we can't rely on the tax base any more than we currently do uh, to 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 run this city. Um, municipalities have eighty percent of Canadians living in them. There's been de- decades of downloading, and 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 basically the tax base can't carry the responsibilities that we have. If you live in Mississauga, certainly we would like to hear from you as well. Mayor Crombie, Mayor Bonnie Crombie is representing you with her concerns about your property tax bill and that it could go up between $300 and $600 a year. That's the average bill over a 10-year period. That's a lot of money, especially in these high inflationary times. So we'd like to have your voice as part of this conversation as well. Numbers to call, as always, Zoomer Radio Fightback, 416-360. 0740 or toll free 18667444740 further to this and I'd like to get your reaction panelists to uh, the premier's comments specific to Mississauga Mississauga has increased their their fees on new home buyers by nearly 30% in the last 2 years alone in fact Mississauga adds every single home that's built adds $126,000 to the price of that home. And that's tough on newcomers that are coming here and families that have kids that are growing up, they want to buy a home or your grandchildren want to buy a home. It's very simple. It's like economics 101, supply and demand. David Crombie, is what the Premier is saying true there? No, uh, it's not. It's a, the, the, first of all, the development charges he's talking about are far more complicated in the formula than he lets on. Everything about what Ford is doing it's always sounds simple until you get behind it, and you'll find it's far more complicated than what he's saying. He, he uses the same kind of tone when, he, when he's busy hollowing out the conservation authorities and, 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 and keeping them from doing what they've been doing for 75 years. He uses the same tone when he says, I have to go and raid and unravel the green belt. Uh, and he's been, he's been talking about, he lies about that. He says, I'm not going to touch it. And he touches it. I mean, this is a man not to be trusted by the figures he uses or the points he tries to make. So that is false, what he said then, David, that Absolute, the, the fees... A- a- absolutely. Yeah. It's more, 
far more complicated than that. Okay. Uh, Karen, your thoughts about this, uh, the way the premier is positioning that Mississauga is getting lots of money uh, for new development housing already. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not surprised the fees have gone up because uh, Mississauga has had historically low development fees because that was a position it took in order to encourage growth of, of the city. But now they've found, as we know in Toronto, as we've already experienced, that infrastructure can only do hold so much new growth until it has to be repaired, upgraded, replaced. So, you know, if in fact that was the number, and I don't know if it was or it wasn't, the reality is, Mississauga is realizing that it needs to fund new growth. And it again, back to the question of who should fund it. Is it the people who already live there or right. is it the people who want to buy into it? And if you don't do it, then you end up in a situation like Collingwood, where they actually don't, they can't allow any more building because they don't have the water infrastructure to support one more new home. And so it, you know, and again, I do find it, you know, it's a, it's a little bit interesting how, you know, we pick on development fees as the only fee that has to be lifted on new homes, but they don't talk about the fact that government charges you know, HST on a new home, <laughs> right? So, yeah. you know, Ward, if you want to stop charging some tax revenue on new homes, you could start there. Right. Because the tax dollar, it's the same tax dollar, no matter it's where it's going, right? <laughs> right. Now, even if this were true, Councillor James Pasternak, what Premier Ford is saying, this fee that he's talking about affects the home buyer, not the developers. So the developers continue to get a break. It felt like a red flag. Well, I mean, if the developer does pass on all of their de- development charges cost to the homeowner, you're correct. It will be it will be passed on. But I think Karen is hit a, a good point. She mentions the HST, but what about the provincial land transfer tax? Mm-hmm. If the premier is so concerned about the uh, the cost of housing, then why does he pull off the provincial component to the land transfer tax? Bingo. Yep. HST rate, re- uh, rebates. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is really uh, the affordable the way to afford uh, housing. And, and the other thing is, what about uh, affordable ownership and, and providing municipalities with the opportunity uh, to offer affordable ownership with, with down payment uh, programs? These are the ways to, to, to really create, um, you know, a new block of housing uh, that's, that's, uh, that's accessible to more, um, not by taking away uh, the ability to have development charges uh, to, to make sure uh, that, that you can flush your toilet. <laughs> well, exactly. It's our Tune Into the Town panel, Jane for Libby, Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, and Mississauga residents are calling in to voice uh, their opinions on this uh, tit-for-tat between Mayor Bonnie Crombie and Premier Doug Ford. Sita in Mississauga, you're a regular on Fight Back. Nice to talk to you. Go ahead. Thank you so much, Jane. Hello, everyone. I am here to support my mayor, Bonnie, and also all other mayors, taxpayers on Bill 23. If we think we have a crisis now, people who are barely getting by and scrunching to get by after they pay the bill, taxing people more will then send them on the streets, food bank, and put a stress on the, on the healthcare system due to mental health. Yeah, well, that that's a good point, too. Sita, thanks for calling in. Let's go to Brian in Mimico. Brian, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, Doug Ford has backed off on other things, and I highly recommend he back off on this one. Why should uh, homeowner uh, taxpayers have to pay more property tax to subsidize people coming into the country or new home buyers or anything else? And I sure don't trust the real estate developers 
to pass on the savings. No, leave it the way it was. These real estate people, they do not need a break. They've been making a killing for decades now, and this is just a no-go situation. I don't know anybody who thinks it's a good idea, and he should just back off of this one. Brian, you're Brian, you're right. And thank you for calling in. I don't know that we have had one comment come in from our fight back listenership since this Bill 23 started being bandied about in support of it. So in response to what a couple of our listeners are saying there, David, uh, can you comment? Well, no, I think it's been I think it's already been well said. There are they're really interested in, in cheapening the cost of housing. And I think they, some of them are. And they, they should be looking what they can do to make a contribution, not just make sure that other people are doing that work. So there, there are, as was pointed out, uh, levies that they already levy. They can change those. There are lots of ways in which they can, where they can change the price of housing. And, and it seems to me that, that that's not their major interest. Their major interest is making sure that their friends in the land development industry have barriers set aside that they regard as barriers today. And so everything you see that's being changed, you don't have to look very far. You'll find that they are ways in which some people in the development industry are able to offset their costs and put it on the public. So, Karen, without asking too obvious of a question, why all this love for the developers in this province from the PC government? Yeah, you know, it's a, I, I don't have a good answer. I mean, you know, I, you know, I think the the expected answer is that because, you know, the developers fund campaigns and they fund politicians, and so politicians feel that they owe the developer something. But, but you know, in the real world of politics, you know, you get funding and support from lots of stakeholder groups. And it's not like the development, to be honest with you, the development industry is pretty consolidated around a few players. It's not a big enough industry to, you know, keep a government um, in power. So I don't know. I, I don't know why this was the route that was taken um, in order to to solve this issue that mm-hmm. isn't is still the issue for me is still not properly defined. And what it's creating, it's going to create a whole bunch of upset, confusion, bad planning, bad building. Like we're, we're putting ourselves at risk of you know building this stuff too quickly, and then it becomes you know not a place anyone wants to live. And so, but, you know, to, to answer your question, quite frankly, I don't know. James Pasternak, uh, what, what about you? What are your thoughts on that question? Why all of this attention and favoritism, you know, maybe I'm uh, going over the line there, but favoritism for developers instead of the people of this province who need to buy and sell homes? Well, I, I think the reality is that uh, every municipality across the province wants to attract investment. They want to attract those who are going to build uh, livable, strong communities. This, this province, the province, um, in encouraging development, is, is just going about the wrong way. Uh, you know, I look at the city's numbers. In July uh, of this year, we approved 25,000 new housing units in one council meeting and, uh, and, and 116,149 new housing units between 2019 and two, July 2022. Municipalities, city council is doing its job. The red tape is in the Planning Act and the appeal process up in the province. So yeah. I just think it's a phony war. I mean, we, we, we're doing it uh, down at the City of Toronto and other municipalities as well, I assume. 
uh, and and the province looks has to look at its own its own store. And as far as relationships with developers, I mean, developers are everywhere, right? They're they're in municipalities, they're in the province, they're at the federal government. Federal government bids, builds big buildings, and they use developers to to do all that stuff. So developers are everywhere. The, the question is, you have to keep them arm's length, and you can't give away the store. Mm-hmm. David, final comment from you before we switch topics. No, I think it's worth remembering that that what's at risk here is the quality of life in the neighborhoods that will be born out of these developments. Um, there's a big difference between building places for people to live and simply like warehousing people and the building of communities at the same time. We build communities at the same time as we're building those new places by having all of these charges used for the building of things that people need in their quality of life, mm-hmm. sewers and all the, all the stuff that, that goes into making a community, including recreation, schools, and so on. So what's being cheated here are people out of a quality of life in the new communities being born. That's the big risk. David Crombie, Karen Stintz, James Pasternak are tuned into the town panel here on Zoomer Radio every Thursday on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. I'm Jane for Libby. Let's talk about the never-ending work on the Eglinton Crosstown LRT. And now it appears there actually is no end in sight. A CBC report is citing leaked confidential documents saying there is no credible plan to complete the Eglinton Crosstown LRT. Total cost of the light rapid transit on Eglinton has apparently increased by about a billion dollars. And the provincial agency overseeing the project is signaling concerns Concerns that cross-links transit solutions, the consortium building the transit line, has not offered a realistic plan to complete it. Karen, I will ask you about this first, since you are actually living in it. <laughs> yes, I am, every day. <laughs> yeah. I love it, yeah, I <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... Um... You know, I, I'd like to... I'd like, you know, when I was chair of the TTC, when I first took over in that role, there was a lot of uh, criticism of the TTC for managing uh, subway expansion projects, uh, particularly the the uh, extension of the uh, Young Line uh, into Vaughan. And, you know, the, uh, I thought that the criticism was unfair because transit projects are notoriously difficult, um, particularly when you start digging underground, you find things that you didn't know were there. And when you're dealing with subcontractors, as we were uh, on that uh, project, you know, some subcontractors fail to perform and then you're into a risk mitigation situation and then it's, you know, timelines extend. And so, you know, all of this was somewhat predictable. I think what the concern is, is that there doesn't seem to be a good um, contingency management plan and that you could predict most of these things were going to happen. I, I couldn't tell you that it was going to be the water tables versus what other problem might pop up. But when you have these big construction projects, there's bound to be issues and delays. You're bound to have problems with your subcontractors. But you also want people that understand how to mitigate against that Mm -hmm. and that they have a plan in place. And this is what's concerning. Now, again, the confidential documents were leaked. I'm sure there's other supporting materials, I hope, to say that there is a plan to get this thing done because this is a signature project for the government. And if they can't get the crosslink built and they can't get the crosstown built, rather, how are they going to build the Ontario line? Which is already mired in controversy before a shovel is even hit the ground. So they need a plan, and they need to. If, if Metrolink doesn't have the capability, well, then they got to find out where it exists because 
this thing has to get done. You know, and to that point, Karen, I actually have a friend who lives off the Danforth whose home is being appropriated for the Ontario line. And this was a a big, like, we got to hurry up and do this a year ago. And they are still waiting to do a deal with Metrolinx. So, um, you know, to your point about how are they going to build the Ontario line, they haven't even gotten through the process of appropriating homes yet. Yeah. James Pasternak, uh, you may be closest to all of this in terms of having some inside information. What is going on with the Eglinton LRT? Well, at one time, it was the largest infrastructure project in North America, which I th- thought was tagged at a little under $7 billion. I believe now it's uh, a little over $12, $12 billion. Uh, It was supposed to open, uh, I believe, this year or last year. Uh, with no end in sight. I mean, all you have to do is drive by. You don't even need to hear from Metrolinx or, 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 or their subcontractors to see how far behind. You drive by any of these stations and you can see, uh, that they're just nowhere near, um, completion. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons. One, um, there's just too many, there's too many moving parts. It's, it was too big for the subcontractors. Uh, Metrolinx had to uh, ramp up to try and get it done. Um, there were all kinds of problems during the pandemic. Um, material costs have increased. There was a, there was a pause in the construction because of litigation. All the partners were fighting. Um, so there's a long list of, of reasons. And it's, it, I think Karen is correct that, you know, how are they going to build the Ontario line or, or, or the, or the Bloor line extension into Scarborough if, if in fact this turns into, uh, the, the fiasco that it's looking into. But, you know, at the end of the day, it will be built, it will be opened, and, and, it, and it will move, uh, you know, commuters uh, across our city on an east-to-west access. So the good news is on the horizon. The question is when. Right. At the end of what day? We need to know, Counselor. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, my wife tells me not to predict. Okay. Um, but look, I, I, I will, I will tell you this: that I, I was hoping um, that it would be this term um, that we would be able to cut the ribbon. So uh, between now and 2026, how, how's that for prediction? Okay. Well, that's narrowed it down a bit, but I mean, it's far off. Uh, David uh, Metrolinks back in September said. They conceded the line would not open in the fourth quarter of this year, which was the uh, one of the many original plans, but that the line will finally be in service in, next September 2023. Your comments on all of this? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not an expert in the transportation for the building of, of transit facilities, but let me offer, I think it was Karen, uh, uh, I think it was Karen who, who mentioned that, that, uh, that there was the, originally it was to be the TTC, but in those days, it was considered that if it was government, it would be done badly, take too long, and it would be too expensive. And so they went for a combination of public and private, and you have a public-private organization now taking much longer, costing much more, and so on. So all, it seems to me worthwhile we, uh, before we go any further with the Ontario line, which will cut through more more neighborhoods and cut uh, interesting uh, cost terrain which is pretty expensive, before we get any further with Ontario Line, they're already running into trouble. We better look at the structure uh, and the experience we've had with the Edmonton Line and see if we can do better. All right. We do have some listeners who want to get in on this conversation, and we are just about to wrap our panel. Uh, but let's go to Jody in Toronto. Jody, hi. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. 
When I was 16 years old, I had to start taking the subway to get to university. And at that time, they were talking about a relief line at Young and Bloor. It was just getting too crowded, and it got worse and worse, and they kept talking about it. Jane, I am now 70 years old, and there's still no relief line. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's how things move in Toronto. It's just, it's ridiculous. You know, I look at the Eglinton uh, line, and it's uh, like there's nothing being done here in our area. It looks like they abandoned it. It's... And, and the other one, the, the Shepherd uh, station that's supposed to go into Kennedy. I mean, what's going to happen with the traffic there when it ends up all those people coming down that way on the Bloor line? Jody, thank you. Thanks for calling in and putting in perspective how long it takes to build transit in Toronto. Final thoughts as uh, we go around the table on what we've discussed here today or, or anything else, David Crombie. No, I'm uh, interesting that we chose the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, transit stuff because in 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 some ways that you can sum up uh, urban and city planning by looking at transit and land use. Those are the two major things that cities do, uh, and uh, we're we're having difficulty in both. But I guess as usual, we we will learn lately. Too late, maybe too expensive. We'll learn as we go. The subway in, on on Young Street. I'm old enough to remember when it was built in 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 1950 to 54. Um, and everybody thought it was the end of the world. It took five years. There were planks from Bloor's, from, from Union Station to Eglinton. Huh. Um, so yeah, I, I have criticisms. Others do. But at the end, it, it will get built. As James said, it will be built and we'll be happy it's there. James. Yeah, I would say that if you were to link the two things we talked about today, it's, Really, what we need is a, is a national new deal for for urban centers and, and cities. I mean, if you look at the American experience, one thing they got after uh, you know sort of in the thirties and, and and into the post war period is the importance of cities when when it came to federal support for transit and and housing. And we kind of didn't do that here. We had it for a while in CMHC, and then it was downloaded to municipalities. So what we need, and I, and I sit on uh, the federal um, federal council of municipalities, um, and um, what we need what we need now is a new deal for cities uh, across the country, where we have federal government uh, in partnership with the provincial governments supporting the infrastructure and investment that we need to support and and make livable for eighty percent of Canadians. And Karen, as I get your final comments, I'm being told that PC MPPs have just applauded themselves for making official the strong mayor powers for Toronto and Ottawa at Queen's Park. (laughs) But I I think just uh, the final epilogue on the transit discussion is that um, I think there does need to be, you know, a real critical look at the model of using public-private partnerships to build... um, transit and big infrastructure projects, because although I fully believe that uh, public-private partnerships have a place, um, they are risky, and no one talks about the risk. They just talk about the, you know, all the benefits that working with the private sector brings to managing risk, but they don't talk about what the drawbacks are when there's conflicts and issues and lawsuits and how that delays and interferes with the public trust and underperformance. And so um, it's not, they're not always a panacea, and there are some partnerships that work better than others. And I know councillors are calling for a public inquiry. Don't know if that's required, but there certainly needs to be a review. I thank you all for your varied and experienced comments. Always a pleasure. 
Thanks, Adrian. You're our, very welcome. Take care. You Good too. You day. too. Right. Our tune into the town panel here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Toronto City Councillor for Ward 6 York Centre, James Pasternak. It is Jane for Libby, and still to come, we speak with an expert on the neurological conditions Celine Dion says she's been diagnosed with. But first... The price of gas. Will it continue to go down? We will find out from our friend Dan McTagg next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off for just today. She will be back to take your calls tomorrow on Free for All Friday. Well, this time tomorrow, the average price of gas in the GTA will be a dollar thirty-five point nine cents a liter. How excited are you about that? Phone lines are open four one six three six zero zero seven forty or toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Regular fuel has not been priced that low since December ninth of twenty twenty one, which is tomorrow's date a year later. We were hoping to have Dan McTagg on the line with us. Uh, you know him from, uh, he's a friend of Zoomer Radios. We have him on quite often. He is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy to talk about what's going on and whether this welcome trend at the pumps will continue. But we are experiencing some technical issues at the moment, so we won't be able to get Dan on today. We look forward to chatting with him again soon. Um, but, you know, if well, while we have a few minutes here before we get into our next segment about the neurological disorder that Celine Dion has told us uh, that she is now living with before we get into that. And we do have an expert on the line to discuss that very sad news. I mean, we all really felt for Celine this morning. Um, Give me a call. We'll do like a mini free-for-all Friday, like a Friday junior free-for-all Friday. And you can talk about what you think about these gas prices. I mean, If the gas price, you know, a year ago, December 9th, tomorrow, we were all complaining a dollar 35.9 cents a liter. It was so much because if you remember, and Sam and I were talking about this this morning on the morning Zoom, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember when prices went down to like 65, 68 cents a liter for gas. And so by the time we got to December of the next year, paying a dollar 35.9 was a lot. And then, of course, we all know what we've been through over this last year. I think at one point it was just under $2.15 a liter for regular gas back in the summer. And then uh, there's been a steady decline of late. Uh, price as we're in the dollar fifty range there about a month ago, and they have continued to come down to a dollar thirty-five nine a liter. And of course, that is the average tomorrow. You'll be able to find it cheaper at places like Costco, some of the independents. Do you want to talk about that for a few minutes before we take a quick break and get into talking about Celine Dion? 416-360-0740 or one 744 740 Gary in Etobicoke. Welcome to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. What are your thoughts? Well, thank you, Jane. Uh, well, I, you know, it's great that it's going down. It, it, it helps everybody who drives and that. But my concern a little bit is that uh, diesel is still over $2 a liter. 
and uh, everything's got to come, you know, to the grocery store and that in, 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 a, in a diesel truck. And if you're, uh, you know, on the bottom of the, of the, uh, the totem pole and you don't have a car, you take the TTC, then, you know, you're still getting hammered and, uh, you know, probably even worse. And, but if you drive a, a big $80,000 SUV, you're saving money. It's, yeah. It's not fair. It's no. Almost, yeah, you're right. That, that, I take your point about the irony. Absolutely, Gary. It is really the only price break that there is at the moment. Yeah, and, and it's the same one they canceled the uh, the sticker fee, you know, on the cars. Um, you know, again, uh, everybody got $120 back. But if you're if you're driving a big, expensive car, did you really need that money back? Mm-hmm. Not a dime of it was put into transit. I I I'd heard 1.6 billion, and um, you know, again, if 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 it was a fair government that took care of the poor, then they, they would have said if your car is worth less than thirty thousand, you pay nothing, and and make it tiered, you know, between thirty and sixty, maybe fifty dollars. And if your car is worth eighty thousand or more, then you pay two hundred a, yeah. a, a year for a sticker. Yeah, good idea. Um, tell me, Gary, before I let you go, are you making any cuts to your budget uh, these days as prices generally, other than gas, are going up? Absolutely. Um, you know the. When you think about, you know, we're going to have our turkey dinner and everything uh, for for Christmas and things like this, but um, it's it's the extras, you know, like the extra box of quality streets, the the bit of uh, you know um, fruitcake on the table, yeah. that, that kind of thing is going to go down. I've, I've always been a person that uh, shops from the flyers. I'm, I'm very lucky to have uh, a lot of stores in my area that I can get to. I feel very sorry for people that could only walk to a Loblaws or something and, and, and have to pay these, these, uh, these prices. But another thing I find now as a person who, again, I'm, I have a no frills right by my house. It seems like the no frills is a lot busier lately. And it seems like the, some of the prices there have gone up even a little more, almost like they're trying to, cash in. Take advantage, yeah. Uh, on the fact that, it, that more people are going there. Yeah, we've, it's called greedflation, and uh, as you know, if you're following along in the news, they are asking questions of the stakeholders in front of a Commons Committee in Ottawa, so it is a concern for sure. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you for taking my call. You have a great day. You too. Let's go to Carolyn in Halliburton on gas prices. Carolyn, go ahead. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, my husband and I just did a little survey this morning. We live in Halliburton. We drive to Bracebridge, which is about a 45-minute drive, to do a fair bit of our shopping because it's considerably cheaper. The gas here in our little local town of Minden is 146.9. If we go to uh, Bracebridge, it's 159.6. If we go to Gravenhurst, it's 139.9. If we go to Aurelia, it's 129.9. Why such a difference? Talk about greedflation and being gouged. Right. And I, I Mr. McTagg was on so he could maybe shed some light on why we are subject to yep. this kind of price range. And I promise we will get Dan on in the near future. Carolyn, thanks for your observations. You're welcome. Let's go to Dan in Midland. Uh, Dan, gas prices, your thoughts. Hi, Jane. Thanks for taking my call. Well, my thoughts... Uh, uh, everyone should be concerned about the price of diesel fuel because inflation starts with transportation. Most transportation is done by diesel trucks, and they're paying 30 cents a liter more than we are for gasoline. On top of that, uh, the other caller there that said there's different prices in different towns, yes, 
I live in Midland. Midland, Barrie, and Collingwood, all of their gas prices have been 10 cents a liter more than Aurelia for over the last month and a half. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed it when I'm driving up north as well during the summer. Same same thing. The discrepancy in gas prices between towns in central Ontario is quite uh, apparent. Well, it seems like the, you know they're supposed to have dropped the taxes, but I think some towns are not dropping the total tax. Yeah, <laughs> I okay. don't know. I, I do don't know, know either, Dan. But I appreciate <laughs> your call. Thanks for taking the time. <laughs> You're welcome. Great talking to you. You have too, a great day. Dan in Midland, not Dan McTagg. Uh, Ron in Guelph. You're our last call on this topic. What are your thoughts? Well, I agree with some of those other callers. It'd be great. Uh, thanks for taking my call, by the way. For sure. Um, um, but the, the price of diesel is what uh, part of the inflation is because of the price of diesel. All the trucks and whatnot have to deliver the food. So um, having said that, I mentioned to Azif, um, I would just as much like to see the price of natural gas go down. Um, maybe yes. Dan McTay can shed some light on that as well as the diesel fuel thing because great, the price of gasoline goes down, but uh, we're all dependent on fuel and natural gas, aren't we? Yes, we are. Ron, those are our final thoughts on the topic for today. Thank you very much for calling. And coming up next here on Fight Back, we will find out from an expert more about Celine Dion's newly diagnosed condition of stiff person syndrome and what it means for her future as a singer and performer. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow for Free For All Friday. Well, as a fellow Canadian, it feels as though I and you, we've known Celine Dion for such a long time, right? She is a national treasure and world-renowned as a singer and performer. And she comes across as so genuinely nice. Uh, I think we all felt sadness when we learned this morning from her that she's been diagnosed with the neurological disorder stiff person syndrome. Dr. Tara Zier is the founder and CEO of the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation in Maryland. And Dr. Zier also lives with SPS herself. Doctor, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. What did you make of Celine's video, her telling us about her condition? Uh, it was powerful. Um, I mean, I, I burst into tears when I, when I watched it. Um, I mean, I can, I can relate to, to it on, on so many levels. Um, hearing her talk about her, her, her children, supporting her, knowing that I'm sure she went through some struggles getting diagnosed um, and um, being vulnerable to to share the information I know can be, can be tough and uh, being able to appreciate that um, her not being able to participate the way she wants to right now and having to postpone uh, touring, um, I was uh, I was a dentist for 20 years prior to stiff person syndrome, and there's a grieving process with that. I can't practice anymore, and so I could relate to, um, you know, the way that she must be feeling 
um, and that it, it, you know it can be it can be lonely and isolating. And also hearing her talk about hope, and hearing her have have a um, like this this positive sort of message, you know that you know she's she's working on her health, she's working to recuperate, and um, and that she misses people. I I just found it very heartfelt. Uh, I I mean I've been crying yeah. <laughs> on and off all day. I mean it, it just um, there's such a human factor to this. And just, um, I just feel a lot of empathy, um, toward her and, you know, I don't know her. She seems super authentic, genuine. Um, our community has been talking and I know like they're feeling some hope, you know, that, you know, she's using her beautiful voice to shine a, a light on this debilitating disease and, um, and, you know, just, she used the word hope in her message, and that really resonated with me because i that's just so important for people to have hope. Thank you so much for those comments, um, because it is personal for you as well. And, and by the way, if you haven't seen Celine's Instagram video, there is a link to it on our website at zoomerradio.ca under news. Uh, and you can hear Celine in her own words telling her story. And you can tell, doctor, that it's very difficult for her to get the message out. I sort of felt like she was on the verge of tears quite a few times because it's, well, I can't even imagine, right? You have to tell your family and friends and then the whole world who depends on you for the entertainment you provide them, you know? Yeah. Can you take us back through, because uh, what's interesting, and, uh, you know, we've all been doing a little bit of reading on stiff person syndrome, which I had never even heard about before Celine's message this morning. And I, but I do see that it is different for every person. Um, Do you mind sharing with us your journey in living with it? Uh, Yeah, I'm happy to share. Um, It is a spectrum disorder uh, with different levels of of disability. Um, So, So my journey, um, I was diagnosed in the fall of 2017 after a uh, three years long diagnostic odyssey um, where I was was misdiagnosed, I was medically mismanaged, told it was all in my head, um, and uh, finally found the right doctor team, which is paramount, uh, especially with, you know, something that's rare. who, you know, listened to me and got me to the right, uh, ultimately to the right doctor to diagnose. But, uh, I started having symptoms in, uh, 2015, um, about three months after my former husband passed away, which actually, uh, triggered the disease. Um, emotional trauma can, can ah. act, actually activate the immune system. Okay. And, uh, and then I had pneumonia three months after that and then just, uh, started to have a, just a, varied symptoms um, from shortness of breath to increased heart rate, um, neck pain. Um, And ultimately in 2017, in the beginning of that year, I had um, a dysautonomia where my autonomic nervous system wasn't functioning properly. Um, And uh, I was kind of stuck in in fight or flight. So, you know, I, my heart rate was increased. I, I wasn't able to sleep, eat. Everything that you don't think about with the nervous system, everything that that controls was was out of whack. And lost 30 pounds in a month in March. And I'm, you know, 
felt this enormous pressure to to stay alive, but feeling a lack of control at the same time. I, mean, you know, I had have two kids. They were seeing this and they had experienced their dad passing away. And now they were, you know, they were watching me, uh, you know, sort of spiral down. And, um, and that was, you know, I was just really going doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor to get answers. Um, ultimately ended up seeing 13 specialists, was in the emergency room nine times, um, had uh, finally found a, a primary care doctor who was committed to uh, getting to the bottom of it. Um, the, the doctor I had prior to her was insistent that I take an anxiety medication. He didn't uh, believe that I had anything medically wrong with me mm. and actually got in my face and said, um, you know, I don't know why you keep going from all these doctors, take the medication and send me back in three months. And, uh, and that's when I said, you know, I, I mean, I was very respectful and professional. And I, I said, you know, if you felt the way I feel, you'd be doing the same thing. And so, you know, ultimately found, found a doctor who was able to help me and um, uh, ended up with um, difficulty walking. Um, so, it, so it evolved from sort of this autonomic nervous system symptoms to more neurological in nature, where uh, I was having difficulty walking, uh, couldn't climb stairs, uh, numbness in, on the left side of my face. And at that point, I was referred to a neurologist uh, locally here in uh, D.C., uh, where he ran a battery of tests. Uh, and, and I looked at the test before the results, kind of what they were looking for. I was so anxious to actually find out answers and it was all rare, rare disease, uh, that he was testing for. So, um, so ultimately got diagnosed in the fall of 2017 and then, uh, been to Mayo Clinic, been to Hopkins, uh, diagnosis was confirmed and, and now I'm, uh, actually being seen at, at Hopkins for treatment. And what symptoms five years later are you living with? You say you can no longer practice as a dentist. Um, what is life like for you with with stiff person syndrome? Um, so, it's, so it's been a process. Um, so, so in 2017, um, that was the that was the worst. So I I wasn't able to work, drive, care for myself or my kids. I uh, had to have uh, first-level living people live with me uh, to help, uh, you know, to help me, to help my children, and I uh, was on a lot of different medications. Um, I've been pursuing a lot of things to help myself get better, including conventional medicine and holistic medicine, um, and um, I've been able to taper on medications. It's a bit of a trade-off, though, with pain. Um, pain is a one of my main symptoms, um, and it's a little bit of a dance where um, the medications, um, because we don't fully understand yet the pathophysiology of the disease or what causes it, it's more focused on symptom management. So, and there's side effects to the medications, um, especially the class benzodiazepines, which Valium is, is a common medication that's used with this, uh, condition. And, um, so, you know, I, I've been able to taper some, but, uh, you know, I, unfortunately there's a trade off there with pain. Right. Um, so I deal with pain every day. The muscle spasms don't stop at night. So it, it can often impact um, sleep. Uh, I've had a couple of sleep studies and 
I don't get adequate deep sleep or, uh, and also I have, uh, a, an elevated number of, uh, micro arousals. And, um, and I deal with, uh, fatigue, uh, every day. So it's difficult to, to, you know, just to function. To function. Um, Dr. Zier, yeah, just it, in the, just in the interest of time, we only have a couple of minutes left. Oh, sure, and, yeah. um, I could talk to you for, for another hour of fight back here. But, um, Celine says that she is working with a sports medicine therapist. Yep. Um, yeah. So what, what, what will she be going through? And, uh, without putting you on the spot, how likely is it again that she will sing and perform? Um, so I, just my mindset and, and I, I, I kind of view myself as a realist with an optimistic spend. I, I believe that anything's possible. And, um, you know, with, with physical therapy, uh, any type of, of therapy with this condition, um, at least my experience, my body couldn't tolerate that in the beginning. So it actually increased the muscle spasticity, the rigidity, the pain. Now I'm able to do it three days a week. And when I say do it, I mean do it like it's intense. And it does not spiral my pain to the point where I need to go to the hospital. That's kind of where I draw the line. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And um, interestingly, in 2018, I, I, understanding that there can be life-threatening breathing problems with this condition, mm-hmm. um, I uh, started taking vocal lessons in 2018 because my thought was, if I can strengthen my lungs, right. then that maybe can help counteract the muscle spasticity from the, the diaphragm muscles, any associated breathing muscles. So Celine may be and, doing uh, some of that. She may be doing some of that. And so, you know, I, I, I can't predict what's in anyone's future, but yeah. I, do, I will tell you this. I would say I'm probably 60% of my baseline, which that means I have to plan and prepare and really there's something called the spoon theory where it's to help understand with a chronic illness, like each spoon represents a unit of energy. And let's say you have 10 spoons for the day and you, you know, two spoons to get out of bed, two spoons to eat. It's like, okay, I have to plan out everything. You know, if I've got something coming up in three days, you know, I have to plan out, okay, when do I shower? It comes down to that level of planning. But with Celine, I mean, my gosh, I feel for her on so many levels, rooting for her. And like I said, I, I believe anything's possible. And so I, I just really, uh, I'm, I'm with her in this in yeah. this journey. Yeah, we we I think we okay. all will be with her in this journey and uh, you especially have a vested interest in how she does. Dr. Zier, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. Absolutely. You're you're most welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. Dr. Tara Zier is the founder and CEO of the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation. Jane for Libby, she is back tomorrow for Free for All Friday. In the meantime, Angus Gillespie in the news, and then the number one's at one with Eva D. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.